Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I first came across about, well, 10 years ago, when we both hung out on uh, forums. We were discussing uh, menswear, as it was called at the time, hashtag menswear. Uh, You often hear that referred to uh, when um, gomologists or menswearists get together and reminisce over the the good old days when it was hashtag menswear, when Nick Worcester had a beard and and wore tweed. Now, um, you're probably wondering now who this may be. So would you like to introduce yourself, Mark? Sure. Thanks, Nick. And hey, everyone. I'm Mark Larez Casanova. And like Nick mentioned, we I think we initially connected over our appreciation for tweed and, and heritage menswear. Um, but I am uh, most recently a student in uh, apparel design, outdoor apparel design at Utah State University here in the United States. And it's a bit of a mid-career change, a rather drastic shift for me. Uh, I started out uh, in my career, actually, this is maybe my third career. I started out studying turtles as a researcher, and then for the past 15 years or so, I've taught at a university uh, where I travel around the state of Utah and to beautiful natural areas and would teach people about the different ecosystems for multi-day trips and and that was really fun and but I reached I guess my mid-career and thought about what is it that I really want to do for for my second half of my career and over the past decade or so I've had a lot of hobbies related to menswear and leather crafting and various design related work and And about five years ago at Utah State University, uh, some professors developed the Outdoor Product Design and Development Program, uh, where students can enroll in a a four-year bachelor's degree and and either study design or development or product line management. So essentially, an industrial design program that focuses on outdoor apparel and gear. Uh, and that that was really interesting to me. I had had an opportunity to work with some of the students in that program in the past. And so I, I took the plunge and enrolled in some courses. And it's been about two years now. And this past semester, I was officially admitted to the program. I submitted my portfolio and and was approved to continue in the program for another two years and, and graduate with that degree. So it's a pretty exciting time, uh, a bit of a nerve-wracking time, a very busy time. And of course, it's all even stranger than normal with the coronavirus pandemic, which has limited our ability to interact with each other. Um, so yeah, a lot going on, but it's a, like I said, it's a really exciting time and it's great to be learning a lot and developing new skills and working toward mastering the skills that I've been working on for the past decade or so. I'll say up front, right at the start, that I am insanely jealous of your guts and uh, gumption in totally tearing up your 
probably quite comfy career and um, going into the garment industry. And I imagine maybe part of your inspiration is that um, having studied garments for a number of years keenly, you're now going in there to fix things. Yeah, and I think in addition to, I mean, the whole aspect of design is solving problems. And so thinking about garments that have interested me over the past decade or so and, and that I've studied and attempted to recreate in some way, thinking about how can I use heritage garments, especially outdoor apparel from, say, uh, the military or early expeditionary gear. Um, how can I use elements of that design to solve modern problems? I think there are a lot of great historic or heritage design elements that are still very relevant today that maybe are overlooked in favor of the newest, most interesting technology or uh, the most waterproof, breathable synthetic fabrics, returning to those heritage textiles and and historic garments and seeing how they're they're still relevant. And it's, it's definitely a uh, an avenue that I don't think any of the other students are really exploring in this program. Now you've mentioned the word heritage a couple of times there. Now, is this a sort of old man thing or can, can we sort of define the term a bit? Because <laughs> many people within the sort of menswear sphere have slightly different definitions, I think, of it. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it could be a little bit of both. I think part of it is embracing my middle-aged fatherhood among a bunch of students who are are frankly young enough to be my kids and and some of my kids are not much younger than they are um so i think i think that's for sure part of it and i embrace that um but i think more importantly when i talk about or when i think about heritage heritage garments or textiles for me, it's really thinking back to a time when, when perhaps function and form were maybe maybe as important. So you could argue argue they're still equally important today, but um, but also, I mean, I think it relates a bit to sustainability for me. So heritage garments, when I think of, of say Harris Tweed, I imagine someone raising the sheep and shearing the sheep and spinning the yarn and weaving the wool all on their own property or in their own locale and being somewhat self-sufficient. Um, and I think knowing where your where your textiles and your garments come from, connecting with the people who actually made it, 
I think to me, those are all important aspects of, of heritage garments and textiles. And I also look back in the actual records from late 1800s to mid 1900s and actually take inspiration from garments that were, were created during those times. So maybe it's a bit of a complicated roundabout answer to, to a question that, that perhaps doesn't have a very clear answer to me. Mm. It does tend to be, be used for quite a few different aspects of clothing, but yours is a, a good answer there because it relates to uh, the realness and the longevity of things and where they actually came from. Uh, a lot of what is now heritage, heritage fashion uh, might be inspired by stuff, but using entirely different materials and being made in entirely different places. And it's really just the heritage, heritage uh, fashion, really. So it's reproducing without really having the solid foundation. And I think that some, some brands, some companies, in my mind, produce heritage garments, even though they're, they may be contemporary styles. An example I think of is Pendleton Woolen Mills. Uh, I live not too far from the original Pendleton Woolen Mills factory in Pendleton, Oregon, uh, that's still in operation today. And to me, they've been growing and producing their wool and wool blankets and incorporating them into garments for a long time. And so even though, even though they're making contemporary garments, they're inspired by their heritage textiles and, and garments that they've made in the past. So I think I, maybe I use the term heritage somewhat loosely. Um, but for me, there's, there's always some sort of aspect of producing the textiles and, and the way it's always been done or incorporating elements of, of actual historic garments into new contemporary styles. Mm. Clearly, Pendleton is a heritage maker in that they have been making their stuff for well, quite a while now, I think. Over a century. It's pretty good. Yeah, at least in the US. Perhaps in the UK and Europe, it's not so long. But here in the US, it's a pretty, pretty lengthy time. I tend to think there is a sort of certain amount of time where it's believable that a company may have existed. And once they start getting over 300 years or so, I'm starting to think, <laughs> sort of, really, what were you actually doing back then? Right. But around 100, 200 years is believable. Yeah, mostly. Um, I'm a bit curious because you say you're inspired by, uh, say, old military and old expedition uh, garments. Is there anything today that is actually new design? It seems to me that mm. most of what we see is a new version of something that's been before. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. As a consumer and a, a wearer of garments, I think that 
what's most interesting to me is some of the the work that may be just straight up reproductions of, of historic garments. Although I have to be careful because I think living in a small town like I do, I try not to stand out too much. Um, but as a designer, I think, I think that's one of my goals is trying to think about heritage garments and using elements of their design, not just recreating them, but solving problems with them. Um, and so I guess one example is <clears throat> one of the philosophies that I try to focus on as a designer is thinking about how a garment can be modular to satisfy multiple needs or multiple conditions. Because I think one of the biggest challenges in the garment industry and in the outdoor industry is, is overconsumption as it relates to being sustainable. And so in order to address that issue, I think about modularity. And so one project I'm working on right now, I just recently completed a, a denim chore coat that I used as an intermediate stage in, in understanding patterning a jacket that fits me well. And so I'm using that pattern to develop It'll probably be an anorak of some kind with a zip up the side, pulls over the head. Uh, using heritage textiles, I've got a roll of a uh, very beautiful Harris tweed. Uh, it's a nice barley corn Harris tweed that I've been eager to use. Um, so making a wool anorak that has components, either pockets or hoods that can be removable and stowed away and so that it can function keeping the wearer warm, but also protecting the wearer from rain or snow if it's needed, rather than having to carry one jacket that keeps you warm and a second jacket that keeps you dry. Figuring out how to incorporate those solving those problems into one garment that's modular. And so, so I think as a designer, I think about what are some new ways to use the knowledge and the tradition and the design that, that's already been captured in heritage or historic garments. And I think there are some designers out there that, that are definitely doing that too. Um, but then there are also plenty of people who are just strictly recreating historic garments that people like me like to wear. But even using those elements of historic garments in new designs, you could argue, well, really that's not necessarily something new, just using existing ideas and and perhaps a, a new way. I think the difference may lie in whether you're just straight up copying something that's been before, uh, like making yet another M65 jacket, mm -hmm. uh, which looks 
identical to the original, but maybe made in a lesser way, or whether you are doing a continual evolution of things. So you're making an M65, but it's an even better one. And the next right. one will be even better. The third one will be modular and yet better. Right. Because you do have a lot of companies now who are just knocking out whatever they did last year in a new color. Mm-hmm. And if people want that, then that's great. And I think for me, that's that's partly the difference between, say, if I were working on a fashion degree as opposed to a product design degree. To me, the difference, there's a lot of similarities, but to me, the difference is in design, you're, you're setting out to identify a problem and empathizing with the user and then uh, figuring out a way to meet the needs of the users or solve a problem that currently hasn't been addressed or solving a problem in a different way. And so I think that component really pushes me to think, how can I create something new, even if I'm using some historic design elements or heritage textiles? Or even a jacket from your own collection? Sure, yeah. I think one of the benefits of of, uh, studying design is that I get to make things for myself. I am the mannequin on which I... I place clothes to try on and fits and adjust patterning. And, and so that's been a really fun process to, to learn. I had no experience in even using patterns, never mind developing clothing patterns uh, before this year. So that's, that's been a fantastic experience just to understand how to create a pattern based off of body measurements and and then looking at how the garment fits and adjusting various seams and panels of the garment to make it fit just right. That's to me, there's a bit of magic in that whole process that's that's really fun to to learn and experience. Has has the new knowledge made you look at any of your existing jackets from your collection in a new light? Yeah, the unfortunate thing is since I started making my own jeans and jackets based on my actual body measurements, I realized everything else I own fits rather poorly. Some clothes I really couldn't wear anymore and had to pass on to someone else. Um, And some I, I like so much that I just have to except that it's not the perfect fit for me and and uh, still enjoy them. I'm, I'm rather tall and slim, so it's pretty hard in general to find clothes that fit me just right. That is a problem for those of us who aren't sort of the standard uh, sizing. And, of course, you're, right. in, you're in the U.S., I'm in Europe, other people are in Japan, and they all have their own standard sizings. and. Uh, being a bit keen on menswear, you might go looking for stuff in Japan, which is sized in Japanese sizes, which makes it even worse. So, uh, are there yeah, any specifics from your collection that have sort of 
you've sort of discovered as hmm, not don't like that as much as before. Yeah, there's a particular brands of uh, from which I've bought trousers over the years, Double RL, which I think you're familiar with, sort of the heritage line of Ralph Lauren. Um, love the work they do. Really interesting fabrics and cuts. And I realized their trousers just do not fit me very well at all. And some of it I've been able to to tailor a bit and adjust um, and be happy with that. But others, I just, I've realized there's no hope uh, and just pass them on to someone else and, or send them to the, the thrift store and, and carry on. Um, but I also, I think it's really helped me develop an appreciation of just how much goes into creating a garment, just uh, in addition to the textiles, um, which I, I can definitely appreciate, just the amount of craftsmanship. I, I love Japanese clothing for that reason. Uh, some of the most interesting denims come out of Japan and, and uh, sort of heritage influenced styles. But like you said, I really can't wear much of it at all because the pant legs and the sleeves are all usually much too short on me. So I just kind of have to appreciate them from a distance and and find another source of clothing for myself. So when you're designing your garments now, you're obviously making the patterns to your measurement, you're selecting the fabrics. And I imagine you're also cutting and assembling everything. Yeah, everything from start to finish, aside from actually producing the textile itself. Um, one of the challenges in being a very small producer, creating one of something or two of something is finding a great source for, for the fabrics that I want. Um, but I've turned to the UK and found some great things and there's a great denim supplier out of Los Angeles that has a, a fantastic assortment of Japanese salvage denims that you can buy three yards of and um, but yeah start to finish from creating the pattern to sewing the test garment uh, to adjusting the pattern two or three or four times to creating another test garment, uh, to finally sewing up, cutting and sewing up the uh, the final version. I do all, all myself, all by hand and all on paper with pencils, sort of the, the way it's not done quite so often in the garment industry, but I think it's really important and it's been really valuable to, to learn the, the traditional hard ways of doing things rather than just all on a computer. So this has given you a new appreciation of just how much work goes into it. Absolutely. And just understanding the different seams that you can use for different purposes and in different areas of a garment has been really fascinating. I've worked a lot uh, with Flat felt seams, which can be challenging, 
French themes can be beautiful. Um, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to be able to focus on every single aspect of producing a garment. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I tend to not cut any corners on any aspect of it. So even just trying to understand thread tension in my sewing machines to get a really beautiful seam or uh, what's the, the right size seam allowance to have just enough fabric to create a, a beautiful flat felt seam. It's really fun to, to be a total nerd about things like that. And, and being part of the program, having other people I can talk to about these nerdy topics that, that not many other people I know are interested in going on about at, at great length. I hear this a lot in the menswearist community <laughs> that, uh, guys into these things want someone to talk to right i think it's it's maybe no different from say cars there are plenty of guys who are into cars and want to talk to other guys who are into cars and go on about carburetors or minute aspects of tuning engines and getting just the right shine on the, the paint would be perfect. You, I think if you sidle up to someone in a bar and say, can we talk about seam allowance? <laughs> <laughs> I might not last long. <clears throat> no, I think cars might be safer in that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something I've found that uh, once I've become more knowledgeable about garment construction, and as you were saying, flat felled seams and French seams and I'll look at a, a jacket, say, and think, oh, this looks okay, and look at the price, and then I'll turn it inside out, and I'll see overlocked seams everywhere, and I was like, ah, no, this hasn't taken them long at all to make, but if it's all felled seams and all lovely inside, I'll see that, well, they spent the extra hours making that. It's probably worth the money. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that... Uh, and. I certainly have an overlock machine um, that I use in certain circumstances, and it's a great tool. But yeah, as a consumer and in knowing what goes into garments, I'm, I'm definitely the same way. I may see a shirt where all of the seams are just overlocked and top-stitched, and that's that. And that's for me, sometimes that's a deal breaker on whether or not I feel the need to own that garment and wear it and enjoy it. Now, you've come to a place now where you're making probably most of your own clothes, which would have been more usual in heritage times. If we yeah. did you using that expression, do you think that's a feasible thing for many people today or has that time just whizzed past? Um, I think that I'd love to get to the point where I'm making most of my own clothes. And in fact, I, I think I'm making most of my own new clothes for sure. Um, I think my enthusiasm for menswear over the past decade has resulted in my owning enough clothes probably for at least the next two decades. 
that other people have made. Uh, although I'm trying to uncollect some of those things. Um, but definitely my the majority of my new clothes I'm making myself. And I think it's really for most people, it's just not feasible. Um, part of the appeal for me is not just not necessarily saving money and in fact making my own clothes often costs more money than buying them because i want just the right denim or tweed or canvas that winds up being more expensive or at least costing me more because i'm buying five yards and not a thousand yards um, so in terms of economy of scale i think making your own clothes is not feasible for a lot of people but really in terms of skill as well, uh, I think it's sewing and patterning and tailoring are are skills that have really, I think, faded a bit in modern society, where our focus it tends to be on wanting something quick and easy that saves time and gives us an opportunity to spend our time doing other leisure activities or working more or what have you. Um, but for me, it's, it's really a hobby. That's a great interest of mine is understanding how to make garments and how to work with different textiles and where do they come from? And I think that's probably out of any interest in my, any sort of hobby in my life that's at the top for sure. And it's only been enhanced after, after being in this program and realizing that there are other people who, who enjoy these things as much as I do. Um, and the fact that I can make a career with these interests as, as important assets or skills, that's been really exciting. Something which I have, talk to several people about is that now I make a few things myself not a lot but a few things I often start off with a hugely inspired idea for a garment that will actually sort of shake the world <laughs> um, but by the time I've sort of uh, cut it assembled it um, uh, I'm sort of uh, not really feeling it any longer and I, I think I've yet to make anything that I have actually worn with any pride or appreciated uh, the same garment with a label from a Japanese company on it or something might well have been <laughs> much better. But do you find that you can make things and truly see the function and beauty and really appreciate them? I think I'm getting there. Um, and I think part of the challenge for me, I don't know how you are, but part of the challenge for me and being a perfectionist is as soon as I'm done with something, I've put tens of hours into making a garment. I start to notice the imperfections or the way in which it's not quite like that Japanese or um, British version that I own. But I think an important aspect of, of making your own garments, unless you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years, is just accepting that that it's not going to be perfect or that there will be imperfections that 
maybe I'll never be able to correct. Um, and just being a little bit uh, forgiving with myself. That helps me enjoy the clothing that I make a lot more. Um, yeah, and I think the response of others too. Sometimes, like with my leather crafting, I may have made the hundredth version of of something, and to me, it's just another one of those things that I've made. I don't really have many feelings about it. But then when I send it to someone and they reply back and say, this is amazing work. I love this. I hope it lasts for years or someone will write back five or 10 years after they, um, after they bought something from me and they'll even send me pictures of how well it's held up and, and worn in. To me, that's really satisfying. And that helps me realize the work I do is, is out of the ordinary, I guess, for, for most people. Uh, yeah, because by the time I finish a garment and have spent so much time on it, I may be tired of looking at it and may hang it up for a few days, take it back out, wear it, and I'll appreciate it more and, and seeing how other people respond to it definitely helps me feel a strong sense of accomplishment in the work that I've done. And if it fits as well. Right. Good. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Because if it doesn't fit, then I won't enjoy wearing it. Now, clearly coming from a, an enthusiast menswear background, as you do, what sort of, which designers, which brands, which garments are you inspired by or do you really like from your sort of previous collection? Of course, now you like your own stuff much better, but. Uh... Yeah, I think there's, there's probably about a half dozen designers I've, I've really enjoyed for the past decade or so. And maybe five to 10 years ago, collected some of their garments and still really enjoy wearing. I think one that, you and I've connected over is uh, Nigel Caborn and his work, especially with Harris Tweed. He's created some really iconic pieces. And I think one of the things that's really interested me about his work is the fact that it's some of it is, is a reproduction of old expedition gear. So in addition to having a really well-made garment, it's almost like I've got a little bit of a, a piece of history, a jacket that is, is uh, influenced by the one that George Mallory wore when attempting to climb Everest. That's that's pretty cool, a bit of history. Um, and so for me, the, the textile, the construction, and the history is all pretty important. Um, also like the work of Frank Lader a lot, the German designer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, got quite a few shirts and trousers from him. Uh, sort of like a historic German workwear type garments, although not strictly workwear. 
he's one you should maybe take a look at. Um, who else? I like the work of Mr. Freedom a lot. Uh, Christoph in Los Angeles. He's, I think it's been probably 12 or 13 years he's been putting out collections inspired by various periods in, in history, whether it's naval history or cowboys or uh, classic American sportswear. He always puts out a really interesting collection. I've got a few pieces from him that I must have picked up 10 or 12 years ago and still really enjoy wearing on a pretty regular basis. I think in an, oh, and then in terms of knitwear, that's kind of a whole other world for me. I love knitwear from the UK. Got a lot of Margaret Howell knitwear. And are you familiar with Esk Cashmere or Esk Valley knitwear? They think they used to be called from Scotland. Yeah. They put together a really nice collection of knit knitwear. Um, I think those are most of the designers and labels uh, that I've been interested in. Although it's one thing that's been great about listening to your podcast is that I, it's introduced me to some of those micro brands that are out there uh, that are producing really great garments uh, with interesting historic influences and sort of a modern twist like lane 45 and I'll probably mispronounce it by Jern Verka. You yeah, it, your, yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. So it's interesting. interesting to, that's an interesting aspect today where it is possible to, to design stuff and there are people who will actually make it for you. So you don't have to sort of be employed by a larger company or be a huge company, you can actually have stuff made. Yeah, and that's been really interesting to think about as I am working on the second half of my new my new degree and where I might wind up afterwards and seeing all the possibilities of one person or two people starting their own label and connecting with factories and textile producers that are creating just the right materials that they want to use. I think that's been really encouraging to learn about. And I think one thing that always, I guess, kind of gives me a, a smile is, is hearing the folks on your podcast and, and on other podcasts I listen to who decide to go into the garment industry or some other design related field from a completely unrelated career. And when they're asked, well, what, what was your experience before you started this in terms of marketing or designing or producing garments and inevitably hearing them say, oh, I had no idea what I was doing. My first garments were terrible. I, I couldn't sew anything worth wearing. And, and uh, just realizing that that people can have an interest and just have a drive to completely change their career and go into this new industry and and be really successful, even though maybe they 
don't have the background or the, the skill at first. It's something they can work on and connect with folks who are the experts in patterning or sewing up garments or creating the perfect linen fabric or wool tweed. I think that's a very good point because I see the same in, in music. You might have someone who's studied music, who is totally an expert in music, uh, but then you have someone who's just picked up the gear, trying to work it out, but create something really interesting and totally different to what would be sort of perfect music. And and you might find the same happens in garments. And I think two of the brands, or two of the designers you mentioned, Nigel Claiborne and Christophe Laurent with Mr. Freedom, are kind of a bit those two sides, um, where Caborn studied fashion and uh, has his design studio with designers working for him. And he does occasionally make something that is interesting. There was a period when he made a lot of interesting things. Whereas Christophe has his background in um, vintage clothing retail, I think. I think he came to the US and worked as a picker or vintage clothes dealers and he's coming in with the sort of fresh enthusiasm of someone who isn't trained or schooled in the field and I suspect that to an extent that goes for you as well yeah I think I think for me it's really encouraging to see folks like Christoph who do as much as they absolutely can themselves within the constraints of scale and and time um i love the the little videos he puts on instagram where that shows him silk screening his own t-shirts um or finishing garments or dyeing them himself or fading them in the sun and to make them look more vintage so folks like him are definitely um definitely encouraging and interesting to me, um, I think one thing that I that I keep in mind is is in terms of this new career I'm going into is is the time that I have to really explore and advance in the career. And I think in terms of having a large scale brand with tens of people working for me and a massive workshop, that's just not realistic and it's not really what interests me to me i think that there's an equal level of interest in in the design aspect but also in the craft aspect of producing garments i've been making leather goods for at least the past decade or so and i just started out buying some materials and some some tools and trying it. And it took probably a year before I felt comfortable giving someone something, never mind selling it to them. Um, but over time, just focusing on the craft and how can I continue to improve even the most minute aspects of how I make something so that when I show it to someone else or give it to them, they're they're surprised. They're they're really happy with the quality of of the things that I make, and then 
eventually started selling them and and that's been a, a fun experience. I think it's been a really valuable experience for uh, for the design program that I'm now studying. Uh, and so I, I feel fortunate that I've kind of had a bit of a head start in terms of a lot of the other students in the program in that that respect. But going back to your to your question, I think that for me the most interesting direction for my future career would be either having my own small shop or working in a small design company that's really focusing on hopefully on the heritage of certain garments or outdoor gear but i think more importantly really focusing on the craft of of creating them Do you see a problem there in that? Um, well, you, you spoke about selling selling the leather goods you made, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of focusing on the craft. So you, you have sort of you're familiar with the business side of it, and I tend to sort of think of this as the heart and the mind aspect of of things, and uh, I'm sort of more interested in the heart, the creativity where where the good stuff happens and not so much the business side where it's all units right. and uh, margins and um, shipping costs and all, all that. So I have a wonder, I mean, I'm so impressed when people start up these small enterprises and I'm sort of sitting there thinking, how on earth are they going to make that work? How is it going to last? Uh, can they pay their bills? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's one thing that definitely makes me lean toward wanting to work in, in someone else's small company. Um, but in terms of, of the leather work that I've done, really, it's only ever been a hobby. Um, it's never really been a primary source of income. And so if sales were slow, it was no big deal. If sales were high in certain periods, like the months leading up to Christmas, then that was great. Gave me a little bit of extra Christmas money, um, but was also really busy and and took up a lot of my my free time. Um, and there are so many great platforms out there now that make it very easy for someone producing things themselves to be able to reach broad audiences and sell things online and manage the financial aspect of it. So I think on a very small scale, it's it's really quite easy. But I think starting an actual brand where you're trying to do it as a career and meeting margins and balancing staffing with income, that's something that I'm sure is a hundred times more challenging and and frankly, it'll, a little scary to me. I'd really much rather focus on the design aspects. I imagine folks who have their own small company, like you said, have to spend the majority of their time on the financial and administrative aspect, aspect of having a, a company rather than strictly the designing and the, and the production. It's probably an advantage or disadvantage, if you like, of being of middle age is that we look at enterprises like that and think, 
Christ, that is scary. That is not <laughs> going to work. Whereas if you're 20 years old, nothing can harm you. Go for it. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they've got the gumption. We've got the fear. Well, there's, there's, there's something to be said for that too. I think that if someone isn't taking risks and failing part of the time and succeeding some of the time, then you could argue that are they really trying or I think that when people take those risks, that's when a lot of times great things are are created and new and innovative ideas happen. Um, If we're just kind of playing it safe a lot, then, then maybe we wind up not really creating anything new. And that's something that I've thought about with my design work so far, what I've, what I've been making has been largely influenced uh, by things that already exist, but I may change certain aspects of a garment to make it function better. Um, and in my most recent project, I I decided to try something really strange and out there and, and take a risk and see how it came out. It's something I normally wouldn't do I was creating a denim short coat that had a lot of influences from depression era and maritime history using a a natural indigo dyed Japanese selvage denim, which is very much in my comfort zone. Uh, But then I decided to add a very technical synthetic fabric to the garment. Uh, It's Dyneema composite fabric, which is, has carbon fiber woven into this very thin, lightweight, semi-transparent material that a lot of people are using to make uh, like backpacks and, and tents and things like that. And thinking about how the two textiles wear over time, I put the the very abrasion-resistant Dyneema in the high abrasion areas of this denim chore coat so in the pockets which tend to fray over time and on the forearms and elbows where um where there tends to be you know holes in the elbows and and so one of the the reasons why i decided to create this weird garment and take this this risk is is to see how these two these two textiles wear over time and look at some of the benefits of of both the natural textile and the synthetic. So I think that's a bit of a, a roundabout idea related to being young and taking risks. I find I really have to push myself in middle age to take some of those crazy risks or develop some of those weird ideas that maybe a younger person might be more than willing to jump into right away. It's mm, a good good point. And I, th- I think also sort of thinking of your chalk coat, which sounds a bit like sort of Tokyo Ninja meets prohibition uh, uh, age gold digger something. <laughs> you, you might actually, through the combination of the heritage fabric and the sort of synthetic fabric, have created a more sustainable garment, even though one of the 
one of the fabrics isn't actually sort of considered sustainable. But you've increased right. the potential longevity, and hence it is more sustainable. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, you know, I've, I've heard it discussed on your podcast a lot with, with your guests, the idea of sustainability and what that means and and ideas of sustainability that work and some that just don't really make much sense. Um, and that's definitely something that that's on my mind with everything that I do. And and sustainability is such a broad topic that everyone has to think about what aspect of it is most important or most feasible for them or their company and address it from there. Um, but I don't think it's possible to be 100% sustainable. I, I actually felt a little bit guilty using this, this technical fabric that probably will never biodegrade when most of what I use is typically as canvas or linen or denim or wool that's pretty much 100% natural. Now, you mentioned people starting new brands, and that reminded me. I see a, a number of small brands starting up now, and they're sort of ethical and sustainable and using only natural fabrics, which are sourced so-and-so way. Uh, and one thing strikes me is that they appear to be part of a new ethical, sustainable, slow fashion, whereby they're all, most of them at least, making variants of very similar garments, where they're all sort of unisexy, um, loose-fitting, mm -hmm. um, natural colours, all a bit sort of bland and dour and colorless <laughs> mm -hmm. and it strikes me that it's, if there's one thing about a garment that can be worn a long time it will last a long time uh, it won't wear out quickly but if you don't find joy in wearing that garment will you actually wear it because there's no sense in it lying in your wardrobe for 20 years so is there room for more playfulness and more color and, I mean, making stuff that you really want to wear? Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, it, it's funny because I've never really been personally one much for bright colors. Like I like earth tones and, and natural colors. And, but I think you bring up a really interesting point about a lot of the brands that are creating uh, sort of loose-fitting unisex garments. And obviously there must be a market for it if if these brands are, are existing and succeeding. Um, and to me, there's a certain aspect of, of maybe not getting caught up in in the fashion so much, but appreciating garments for being comfortable and produced naturally and uh, sustainably. That maybe the focus for a lot of people is on that rather than 
bright colors or interesting new fashion designs, um, which in some way is really comforting to me that maybe people are caring less, a little bit less about how their garments, how their clothing looks than how it's produced. Because if we focus on seasonal, interesting styles, I mean, that changes so fast that you can cycle through so much clothing or wind up, like you said, having so much clothing just sitting in our, our closets being unworn that, um, that that is, to me, truly unsustainable. Um, but if we don't care about seasonality, if we want our clothes to be less interesting but produced sustainably using natural dyes, then I think, it, I mean, I see your points that it's interesting there's so many brands doing that right now, but to me, it's, it, it's almost comforting in a way, if that makes sense. Uh, I think it should for middle-aged men <laughs> be comforting, but uh, right. it struck me while you were talking and you mentioned uh, two, two brands, Lane 45 and Jan Vetica, and, and I was struck by, I mean, Jan Vetica make uh, heavy linen clothes and I have a pair of their heavy linen trousers in a sort of bright orange color. Mm -hmm. they, they could have made them in beige or light brown or whatever. But in that color, they're so brilliant, and I wear them all the time, and they make me feel happy. Uh, Lane 45 is also sort of unisex, um, mm -hmm. natural stuff, and so it could have been in the same trap as well. But then he sort of brings out this huge orange tweed coat or really weird shapes and stuff that makes you happy. And it's not yeah. just all stuff that sort of seems a bit inspired by sort of uniforms they wear in North Korea, which is probably going to. The comparison is going to get me into a lot of trouble, but um, I mean, there's so much stuff which is just so boring. You can yeah. imagine you get up in the morning, you pull on this clothes, and you go and have your porridge, unsweetened, of course. <laughs> the weather is always overcast. It rarely, sun rarely comes yeah. out. <laughs> it just seems uh, so colourless. It's funny. I, I find myself in this sort of constant... Um, sort of like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, where I'm really interested in clothing, but I'm trying to not be so interested in clothing that uh, my interest in other things is diminished or I spend too much money on clothes or I have too much just sitting in the, in the, in the closet being unworn. Um, and so I, I guess I can just appreciate both, both perspectives, people who may want something made really well, that won't go out of style, that's made with natural colors or dyes. And, but I also, I have some of those pieces too, where they're really bright colors and really interesting and stand out and, um, yeah, I, I think personally, I don't really have a a preference too much one way or the other. But in terms of a designer, I, I find I really have to push myself to make those weird things. 
But some of the best advice uh, back before the coronavirus pandemic, we used to have guests from the industry come into the class classroom um, and give us a presentation about their work as a designer and then inevitably give us some advice uh, as, as up and coming designers of what's been valuable to them. And some of the advice that's really stuck with me the most is while we're students, make weird things because this is the time when, when nobody's telling us what to do or giving us constraints on what we can make. Uh, so take that opportunity to make, make weird things. Don't just make what everyone else is making or the thousandth version of, of something that's all over the market, but really think about what interests us the most. What, what are we real nerds about and focus on that, make those weird garments or those strange pieces of gear that nobody else is making. Cause that's when, when we take those risks, um, that's when we can discover something new or interesting uh, that may have an impact on the industry. So I think I, I have to push myself not only to wear those weird things, but also think about weird new ideas as a designer. I think that's one of my biggest challenges. And I don't know if that's because I am middle-aged or I've always been that way. I think in some aspects, my, my mind focuses more on the engineering of garments rather than the artistic side of, of producing garments. Mm. Might be, Mark, that you have to hang out more on TikTok and get hip to what the <laughs> queeners are into. <laughs> get hey, I just, I just got in. into, yeah, I just got into Instagram. So TikTok, that might be a little bit much for me. Yeah. Um, I was just struck while you were talking now, um, you mentioned, uh, garments you liked uh, back in time uh, and uh, the Mallory jacket by Nigel Caborn, which I think is a really successful design because at that time and now and pretty much most of the time, tweed jackets, not that tr trendy, not that popular mm -hmm. among younger people. But just by adding some ventile there and coming up with the backstory, which was kind of plausible, uh, he totally reinvented concept of the tweed jacket. And it still makes me happy to see the design today and see how little you could, you could buy a secondhand tweed jacket, take it apart, add some canvas, and you basically have replicated it. But to me, it also showed that if you're going for big sales to the masses, you have to go a bit more middle of the road Mm -hmm. But if you're selling, thinking of selling fewer examples, you can go way outside the road. Yeah, I think those are, I have two Mallory jackets and those are some of my favorite pieces. I think I'll always have and just be happy, always be happy wearing. Um, and I think I agree that there's a big difference between that jacket and a classic Harris tweed jacket. I think if I 
were to find a vintage Harris tweed jacket and wear it around town, then I'd really look middle-aged and it would, uh, all of my gray hairs would stand out, I think. Um, but if, with this interesting, strange, atypical design of the Mallory, it becomes something more than just a Harris tweed jacket, like you said. It's one of very few jackets where I've worn where someone has come up to me and said, nice jacket. And it was, in fact, yeah. a, an older woman who said it. So uh, most of the time, people do not pay any attention to what we're wearing. Right. But just that day, something must have happened. I don't know. But <laughs> a rare compliment. Yeah, I get compliments, I think, mostly on my uh, Mr. Freedom denim peacoat. Uh, I have the midnight denim version, the darker, and it just it fades to this really brilliant blue. And as with any denim garments, they really start to stretch and crease and get to the point where they fit just right and look really good. And that's something that I think I've gotten the most compliments on and something I'll continue to wear for forever probably i have the same one and it's molded and fits and looks great but it was second hand so it fits great and is molded to someone else's body i haven't <laughs> worn it much myself yet well, i'll give it time yeah. yeah now i'd like to loop back a bit to where we actually started out about 10 years ago hanging out on style forum uh i'm not sure if we were in other places but it was all the hashtag menswear. And as I mentioned, Nick Buster had a beard, wore tweed and brogue boots and whatever. What sort of clothing from that time can you remember still like, even still wear, possibly even still lust for? Anything come to mind? Um, I think I, I never really got into the suit aspect of menswear. I think I wear an actual, like a proper suit about once every three years. Um, but the more casual aspect of it, the Harris Tweed jackets and Brooks Brothers shirts and Alden wingtips, those are things that I, that I still wear on a fairly routine basis. Obviously, the past year or so, I think I've been living in the same jeans and sweatshirts most of the time. Um, but I think that, I think that the tweeds and the wingtips and the flat caps, those are things that I'll always, that I'll always wear. And I think I can get away with it being a middle-aged dad. I think that maybe people expect that to be the pinnacle of, of us middle-aged dads and, we don't necessarily follow year-to-year -year trends. Um, so I think I find comfort in always returning to those, to those things that interest me the most 10, 12 years ago. And I'm pretty satisfied with, with what's in my closet. And, and I think it's a style that I'll probably always, always be interested in putting out there in the world. 
Sounds a bit like sort of East Coast Ivy League academic look. Is that what you're a bit. aiming for? <laughs> yeah, a bit, I guess. I Although day to day, I think I'm for sure more interested in the workwear aspects where a lot of denim and and uh, the occasional flannel shirts and jeans jacket. So maybe I've got kind of two two different styles. I I'm most interested in one, one a little more practical, another for looking a little sharper if I'm if I happen to be out around town or on campus. How about you? What do you find that you return to that you were I, interested in a decade ago? I think what happened, say eight to ten years ago, was that there was an awful lot of good stuff that was brought to the forefront and so much of it appealed to me. I mean, it was when Red Wing 877s and stuff, that's mm -hmm. when they first came out, was people were wearing them. Heavy brogues, old Nindy boots, uh, just looking over at my shelf here. <laughs> I mean, solid handmade footwear. Of course, the tweed and the Japanese denim, uh, cameraman jackets. Oh yeah, all, all sorts of classic stuff. Which is just there was just so much of it then, and it, you could combine it all sorts of ways. Which is what basically what I'm still doing, mixing up the waxed cotton and the tweed and the wool and the denim, and 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 I think that has endured for many of us. Whereas men's fashion has gone other ways but those of us who have sort of <laughs> i hate to say sort of stuck to it like true believers uh, <laughs> are basically still going the same way mixing up the japanese influences the classic right. stuff and yeah i mean waxed cotton smocks mm -hmm. old barbers vintage pieces new pieces um not gone down the sort of sneakers, streetwear, techwear, which would have been if we'd followed the fashion. Yeah, and I think that being middle-aged dads, for me anyway, there really is only so much time and and mental capacity that I have to spend on on. Uh, new trends, new ideas in fashion as a, as a consumer necessarily. Um, and so for me, it's, it's a comfort to just stick with what really interested me and in, in my peak moments in the menswear world, um, especially going back to college and still working mostly full time and being a parent and a husband, frankly, I just don't have the capacity to keep up with, with new menswear trends. And although there are certain designers I really enjoy following on Instagram to see, see what they're doing and, and how they're approaching things like, uh heritage influence or sustainability from a 
from a designer standpoint. I think it is true though that men of a certain age do sort of um, put down their tent pole or whatever there, and that's sort of basically what I'm going to wear. Right. Going forward. <laughs> well, and perhaps I think related to that, you get to a certain age, and maybe there's a, a possibility that you might look a little silly in some of the newest trends. I can't imagine how I'd how I'd look in techwear. That would be interesting. I'll Photoshop it for you. I'll okay. include it in the show notes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> You'd probably uh, probably be okay in it though, because uh, I mean that sort of stuff is sort of typically made for the slim teenage body, and it's made really? in such a way so that middle aged sort of more sturdy arms can't get into it. So we're it's weird, <laughs> kindly telling us that we can't, we're not allowed to wear it. But you might get away with it. <laughs> yeah. There is every once in a while I see uh, an older guy who's in contemporary, trendy fashion and it looks good. But I imagine that's probably a small percentage of us. I think that is very true. Yeah which I think is kind of okay because, I mean, you have to let the teenagers have their stuff, let the young people have their stuff. If they want to wear very, very tight, ill-fitting suits with the legs too short and no socks, they mm -hmm. right? do it. Yeah, it's not for me, but... Yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, I noticed with, with some of the teens I know that 90s fashion seems to be coming back into style, which it's is funny because when I look back on, I think my interest in clothes sort of started in the 1980s. And the 80s, they'll always be iconic for fashion. Um, but the 90s seemed like it was following such high hopes of the 80s that it, to me, what I was wearing in the nineties really kind of fell short. I consider it uh, the most disappointing era in fashion of my, my adult life. And so it's really interesting to see nineties fashion coming back into style these days. I can't even begin to imagine what nineties fashion looked like. Um, but I am hopeful that seventies fashion won't come back harder than it has done. Yeah, that would be that would be bad. Although in the seventies, I was a kid, and some of the stuff, some of the clothes for kids in the seventies were pretty fantastic. I think my favorite, my most worn, at least looking at photos, my most worn piece of clothing was a pair of red corduroy overalls, which that could be pretty cool these days. Perhaps you should make that your next uh, design challenge. All right. An updated adult version. Yeah, I'll add it to the list. Mm. Uh, I'm things having to disturbing, disturbing visions here. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, Mark, I see we've uh, been talking for a while now. Um, and time to wind up. Any thoughts or things you'd like to mention before we close hmm yeah i think 
I think one thing for me, obviously starting a new, whole new four-year degree has been, uh, you know, at times a pretty scary thing, pretty nerve-wracking, but having completed about half of the program at this point, I, I look back and of course, anything new is going to be, uh, be a bit scary, but I'm really grateful for having taken that chance. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate and feel a quite a bit of privilege to be able to enroll in college again and, and have the support of my, my family and, and I guess the resources to be able to do that. Um, but I think one thing that that I would encourage your listeners is, is if they have ever thought about a new skill or a new hobby or maybe even a new career, uh, to just take a chance and maybe not feel like it's a change that can happen in the short term, but take up that new hobby and, and explore some of these ideas that they've always wanted to, to do. And I, you know, I think about going back to college and it may seem like a, a pretty, pretty impulsive decision, but really it's been an idea that's been building for the past decade or so. And, and I've finally gotten to the, to the point where I can take that opportunity. Um, but learning those new hobbies, those crafts is really what, what has given me the experience to be able to consider this new career and, and apparel and gear design. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that if there's anyone out there who's thinking about taking up knitting or weaving or sewing or any, any interesting craft, there's got to be some place like a local shop that has workshops or uh, here in the U.S. we have um, vocational schools or technical colleges where you can learn crafts or, or trades like that. So just give it a chance. It's better than, than living with the regrets of never having tried that thing you always wanted to do. That was uh, good advice. I'd, uh, I'd like to second that. I've been uh, sitting on the fence for so long myself. <laughs> so instead of learning stuff, I sit there making podcasts and uh, whatnot, talking to people who do do stuff. Well, uh, and it's great for this. One of the things that has been really valuable to me is listening to your podcasts and listening to the story of other designers or the story of the folks who actually weave Harris Tweed or... Um, and just hearing about their experiences and the same trials and tribulations that they've gone through that I'm now approaching. I think it's, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I think that your podcast has been extremely valuable to me and probably other people who, who uh, like to make stuff. Thank you. I do think it like oh, I like to think it makes the world seem a little smaller. Absolutely. Um, so. Okay, Mark. Best of luck with your design endeavors. 
I'll uh, add your Instagram and other details to the show notes so people can find you and uh, check out what you're up to. And um, bye-bye for now. Yeah, it sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Nick. It's been great, great conversation. It was a pleasure. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology. Thanks to Mark for being my guest. And uh, you can find his Instagram details in the show notes. I'm Nick Johannesson. You can find me on Instagram as WellDressedDad. Uh, you can find my blog at WellDressedDad.com. And I'd be really grateful if you'd subscribe to Gomology, leave a rating, or even better, a review. And um, I'll catch you again in a week or so. Bye-bye for now.